Our scripture this morning is actually two separate stories, but both of them take place in that fabled upper room, the place where Jesus had gathered his disciples for the Passover celebration the night before he was sentenced to death. The first story takes place on Easter Sunday night, the day of his resurrection, while his friends were locked up in that room, fearful and wondering what would come next. They did not yet know what had already come to pass. And then Jesus appears to them and gives them some divine CPR. The second story is that iconic story about poor doubting Thomas, who definitely gets a bad rap. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can so relate to Thomas, and I think many of us can. So to set the scene, they are at the very same house a week later, the scene of those wonderful feasts around the table. But Thomas, Thomas had not been with them when Jesus had appeared for the first time. We don't know why. Uh, maybe he was taking out the garbage or off doing a statistical analysis of relativity. But whatever the reason, it seems that Jesus now, a week later, shows up to our lovable skeptic, and an interesting encounter ensues. Reading is taken from the Gospel of John. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven of them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Will you pray with me? 
On this, the week after, O oh God, remind us of why we are here. Startle us again with the good news of Easter, the joy of a world and a future made different because your love has conquered death and hate. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A pastor I know says one of the hardest things she does is to celebrate communion at a local nursing home um, on the poorer side of town. Most of the residents there spend their days in, slumped in wheelchairs in the television room. And once a month, the nurses roll a few of them into the sunroom and park them in a semicircle for a short church service. Now, any of you familiar with the nursing home environment know that how difficult that can sometimes be. Some of the residents are confused or call out randomly while others sleep. Um, only a few stay awake for the whole 20-minute service. She says it's hard because she's never sure that what she's doing will get through their fog. But one day when she went, she said the, the gang was a little bit more vocal a little bit more awake, and one woman sang, row, row, row your boat through the whole beginning of the service, and it began to get quite noisy, so she clapped her hands, and she asked them to choose the gospel reading for the day. What shall I read from the Bible today? What would you like to hear, she asked them. And suddenly one shaky voice from the back said, tell us a resurrection story. And soon their ears perked up as one after another said, yes, yes, tell us a resurrection story. And who doesn't want to hear a resurrection story? Isn't that what we're all here to hear today? Life out of death, life amidst death, life after death does resurrection look like? I think we all want to hear a resurrection story. And so it is on the week after the resurrection. In some ways, it's a lot like other weeks after, the week after Christmas, the week after a wedding or a graduation. It's like the week after a birth or a death. We think, what now? What next? Things have changed. We know things have changed. We know they'll never be the same. But just how will everything be different? It's too soon to tell. Barbara Brown Taylor writes that the problem with the week after Easter is that things really aren't all that different. We spend 40 days of Lent preparing for the life-altering reality of the resurrection, but really not much has changed. We're still busy going about our lives, still shaken by the headlines, still waking up in the middle of the night with more anxieties than hallelujahs. I mean, even if the world isn't different, shouldn't we be? Maybe what we need is a resurrection story. There aren't many week after resurrection stories in the Gospels. Only the Gospel of John talks about it. 
um, what, what it's like to be a disciple in, on the week after the resurrection. First of all, the story of that first Easter is not actually a jubilant one. I mean, we know that Mary had seen that the tomb was empty, and she had told them that she had seen the Lord. But instead of going out into the world to preach the resurrected Christ, we find his followers where? They have locked themselves in a room. Not just any room, the very room where a few days earlier they had been eating and drinking and celebrating the Passover and getting, by all accounts, a most excellent foot massage. I picture in my mind's eye this room, which was a, the scene of celebration just days earlier. But instead of a feast, I'm guessing maybe some of the female disciples have set out some leftover tuna casserole and a jello mold that somebody brought by. But who can eat? They are afraid. Just what would come next for them? And for this movement that they had been following, this vision of the very kingdom of God, they were afraid. In fact, they were so terrified, they could not remember how to breathe. If you or anyone you know or love has ever had a panic attack, you know what fear can do to you. The racing heart, the sweat, you can't catch your breath. Their fear had them all locked up and unable to breathe. And then he appears. He doesn't say, why did you abandon me? He doesn't say, why did you betray me? No, he says just this. Peace be with you. And then Jesus does the most extraordinary thing. He breathes on them. He breathes his peace into them, and he turns their fear into rejoicing. Taylor writes, maybe they had to be able to breathe before they could hear anything else. So he gives them this divine CPR, gives them his very own breath to bring them back to life. He breathes his own life into them. But Thomas, well, Thomas wasn't there. Thomas shows up the week after. You'll remember that on that Easter night, even though they didn't ask, Jesus holds out his nail-scarred hands and shows them his pierced side. The wounds from Good Friday are still there. Even after death has been conquered and stone has been rolled away and he has been raised from the dead, even after all of that, the risen Christ still bears the marks of his wounds. But why? Why does Jesus still bear the marks of his wounds? Preacher Shannon Kirshner writes, frankly, God could have fixed Jesus up a little bit made him look better. Wouldn't all those post-resurrection stories be more powerful if Jesus looked, well, a little more victorious? Maybe with that special glow, wearing white robes, and maybe a crown on his head? 
The disciples definitely would have known it was Jesus then. But not for Thomas. For Thomas, the wounds were critical to recognizing the risen Christ. He didn't have to see Jesus. He had to feel the wounds before he could recognize him. You see, for Thomas, it was in his wounds that he recognized him. The resurrected Christ is forever, I think, the wounded Christ. Living, yes, but still bearing the scars of our humanity. Today is National American Sign Language Day. Little trivia there. Um, and those of you who know American Sign Language, anybody know a little bit? To say the word Jesus in sign language, you take the middle finger of one hand and you touch the inside of the palm of the opposite hand, and then you switch. Everybody try it. You're all saying Jesus. Whenever we say Jesus in American Sign Language, we remember in our own flesh that the resurrected Jesus is forever the wounded Christ. By bearing the marks of his wounds, Christ reminds us that the God to whom we pray has taken our woundedness into God's very self. God authentically understands what it means to be human, to be us. So when we walk into hospital rooms, we go in knowing that because of the wounded Jesus, God understands what it means to be cut in surgery or physically injured or in pain. We all carry the scars of life. Some scars are on the outside, and often many more are on the inside. So when we find our heart breaking with grief over a deep loss, we know that because of the wounded Jesus, God's own heart has been broken over the death of a loved one. God knows what it's like to suffer and to long, long for resurrection. By bearing the marks of his wounds, our risen Christ proclaims, that, proclaims to all of us that violence and brutality will never have the last word. And that, my friends, is the good news of resurrection. Christ's resurrection tells us that even when we are wounded or defeated or broken by life, even to death, love and life have the last word. The resurrection tells us that love always wins. Or to use a baseball metaphor, love always bats last. God's amazing grace always bats last. Resurrection means God's, God creates life out of death all the time. And he takes our woundedness and makes us whole. 
Friends, we too are called to be a resurrection force of love and life in the face of hate and death. Jesus defeated hate and our death-dealing culture and calls us to do the very same. You see, when Jesus appeared to them on that first Easter Sunday, what he really wanted, I think, was to get them out of that locked room. He breathed life into those frightened and discouraged men and women to get them up and out of the room and on to the streets. The Apostle Paul said, in Christ we are a new creation. He wanted them, he wants us to act like it. Wendell Berry has this great poem called Manifesto, which goes in part, friends every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing, take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Ask questions that have no answers. Invest in the, uh, the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest you did not plant and that you will not live to harvest. Practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. There's this great song we're going to sing in a moment that for me embodies the great hope of Easter. It's called In the Bulb There is a Flower. It's a hymn that kind of embodies the great promise of resurrection, the life that lies within death, which like for those first uh, disciples, we often can't see. Natalie Sleeth, the composer, wrote this hymn at a time when she said she was pondering the ideas of life and death, spring and winter, Good Friday and Easter, pondering resurrection. And she was inspired by a line from the T.S. Eliot poem that goes, in our end is our beginning, the phrase that appears in the third stanza. Natalie's husband, a Methodist minister, was diagnosed with cancer shortly after the hymn was composed, and it, it was sung at his funeral, and of course, at many, many funerals since. And by the way, if any of you know me when I pass away, please be sure that someone sings this at my funeral service. I'll end with its words. In the bulb there is a flower, in the seed an apple tree. In the cold and snow of winter there's a spring that waits to be. In our end is our beginning, in our time, infinity, in our death, a resurrection at the last, a victory. Amen.